you would have gotten so into all the waistcoats and the brocade jackets. Can you think about the lace at your wrist? The lace at your cuff. Yeah. You have dandy written all over you. The wigs you would have had, the perukes. Uh, you, you know... You know that that's not a dandy, that's a fop or a macaroni or something. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. General Cornwallis over here is Daniel. Benedict Arnold. Uh-huh. Because you betrayed the Americans and came here, is over there, and her name is Abby. She's a female Benedict Arnold. You can have that these days. <laughs> Do we have any letters? We have uh, an email from old enemy of the podcast, Abby's friend, Justine. 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 She says... Keep in mind she's a medieval scholar, so she's replying to our Beowulf episode. Baying for our blood. Baying for one of our bloods. I laughed out loud when you said I was cracking my knuckles. Because that is literally what was happening in my head. The old head knuckles. <laughs> as I heard Daniel's short spiel on what the Middle Ages are. To give him credit! Oh no, the old shit sandwich. <laughs> Daniel is right that the early Middle Ages would definitely have seen that mishmash of pagan and Christian existing alongside and blending into one another. Because conversion to Christianity was relatively recent. In conclusion, I am right. Ish. About when, what the early mid Middle Ages are, my little dialectical reading of the early Middle Ages, insofar as it is a hybrid of pagan and Christian culture, but as it went on, it was predominantly Christian. So for you to say, you know, the Middle Ages as a whole, the medieval period, she took umbrage with that, given that that is a period of a thousand years, and, you know, sort of slightly later after Beowulf was written, it would be predominantly Christian, so that tension wouldn't really have existed. Here's my rebuke. I never said pagan, I said barbarian. So I meant like the law codes and shit. The martial tribal culture. Okay. Again, I don't know anything about the Middle Ages, but... But you're... I feel like, I feel like I've been wrongly... <laughs> wrongly characterized on saying it was a hybrid of pagan and Christian culture. I said barbarian and Christian culture. Alright, Justine, I can, I can hear you flexing. Okay, so then she wrote a PS. Based on that one semester of Old English I took in undergrad, I'm pretty sure Hvet is pronounced with a soft W and a short, flat A sound. The honest-to-God closest example I can think of is that it's like saying twat. I never thought of rhyming what with twat before, but I'm indebted to your podcast now for granting me that revelation. We have a slight update on our bi-weekly corporate-mandated friendship exercise. So a few weeks ago, I revealed that Daniel and I actually really loathe each other in real life. Corporate got mad at us because we're sort of revealing secrets of the podcast. They're trying to make us friends. So today I've made these beautiful friendship bracelets for me and Daniel. I think they're working, personally. I mean, I think we're experiencing the secrets of sisterhood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> although, can I be brutally honest? Only a true friend can be that brutally honest. The sleepover that we had, I, uh, I didn't really enjoy it. I think it's kind of weird that a grown man wears footy pajamas. I like to have 
incredibly hot feet. Is and that wrong? When you braid somebody's hair, you're supposed to wait till they're awake. It's a really <laughs> alarming way to wake up. So, Daniel, what is our text today? You know, after Justine's email, clearly we've got to get out of the barbarous Middle Ages and into the good half of the last millennium. You know the half I'm talking about. This one is a historical novel. We're back in merry old Elizabethan England. There's plague everywhere. Footpads, cut purses. But that said, things are pretty good in some circles. Big roughs, all the lead-based makeup you could want, and uh, extraneous ease on tap. Elizabethan times, good old Queen Bess, bloody blah, blah. We're doing Orlando, a biography by Virginia Woolf. So it goes without saying, we are going to spoil this book for you. The trigger warnings, we have some racism, a lot of orientalism, decapitated heads, if that's a thing that you're freaked out by. Why bad, wouldn't be, I think. Bad breakups, if that's also a thing you're freaked out by. This is a trans narrative, so if you're freaked out by trans people and you're going to be a dill hole about it, this is not a good episode or book for you. So should we do some background, friend? Yes, please. Oh, me. <laughs> Virginia Woolf. She's one of the top modernist novelists. I think they can generally be characterized by sort of experimental use of language and kind of trying to develop new ways of representing consciousness and time and stuff. That's, that's how yeah. modernist novels work, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're not huge on plot necessarily. Mm. Um, Orlando kind of is. I think this is a really great introductory text to modernism if you're a bit thrown by some of her other works. Wolf was a feminist. You know about that, don't you? Um, I've heard tell. Yeah. She wrote A Room of One's Own. That's just about how it's hard to be a woman artist. There are various impediments. And I don't want to downplay it too much, but the general conclusion is that you have to be of middle class and have a room of your own to write in. Which I suppose is true, though, isn't it? For everybody, you know, it helps to be of middle class if you want to be a writer. Well, I mean, she's, she's stumbled quite early into white feminism. Yes, so. yeah. Well, that's the next thing I was going to say. Maybe paradoxically, maybe not. She's also, you know, remembered as a kind of a bit of an elitist, isn't she, Wolf? Mm -hmm. She wasn't a full-on aristo, but she was sufficiently of a middle class to punch down on a whole lot of other people. And she was clearly obsessed with oh, the aristocracy, yeah, 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 yeah. as we will see. Virginia Woolf and her husband Leonard were linked to the Bloomsbury sets. The Bloomsbury set was a group of sort of writers, philosophers, economists, artists, so, you know, lots of different just sort of thinkers, people in the set. They were the it group of the day. Daniel has a note here saying they were a posse of sexually liberated poshos. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much it, right? If you're the kind of person who wants to have sex with an economist, the Bloomsbury group. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're some kind of sicko, then the Bloomsbury group is the place to go. So a lot of them claim to be very sexually and morally liberated. Many of them were bisexual. I think most of them were bisexual or pansexual or polyamorous. And there's a really entertaining chart online, if you can find it, of all the members and who was married to whom, who was friends with whom, who was sleeping with whom, related to whom. Um, I just picture Marie Kondo going, I love mess. Virginia Woolf was one of the much shyer members of this sort of very uh, liberated group, but she developed this huge crush on one of the members, a woman named Vita Sackville-West, who is this aristocrat. And she is the inspiration for Orlando. This book is supposedly a biography of Vita Sackville-West. We're going to see why that's... Um, the word biography is maybe a little... Quite loose. Yeah. yeah, loose, a little difficult to apply here. 
And Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville-West only slept together twice, but they remained lifelong friends. And one of Vita's sons later said that Orlando was, quote, the longest and most charming love letter in literature, which I think is really sweet. This is also, as I said in the sort of triggers a trans narrative, and Vita Sackville-West herself actually did dabble with gender play. She started dressing as a young soldier named Julian, and she wrote a letter to Virginia Woolf saying that she had grown up always feeling like a boy, and Virginia Woolf said, if you feel like a boy, you are a boy. Virginia Woolf's father was also the first editor of the Dictionary of National Biography, so Biography is sort of in Virginia Woolf's blood. She grew up writing histories of friends and family and eventually wrote professional criticism and fiction about biographical issues. So we will see that she's very well attuned to biography and she's very careful with choosing to name this Orlando a biography even though it's largely fictional. Did you know that she wrote a biography of, I bet you did know this, of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's cat? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Should have been doing that instead of this <laughs> garbage. Yeah, you're not a fan, are <laughs> no, you? No, yeah, I love it, yeah. I also should warn you that I'm going to make a lot of Mrs. Dalloway jokes in this. For you, If you guys don't know Mrs. Dalloway, it's another one of the novels that she wrote. Robin Williams. Love that film. Yeah. The famous opening line of Mrs. Dalloway is, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. I'm going to be a w***er about that line and sprinkle it throughout this whole thing. Great. I look forward to that. It's Elizabethan England, and we are at the ancestral estate of Orlando, a handsome, sensitive boy, and he is playing with the decapitated and preserved skull of a man from Africa, presumably, that one of Orlando's ancestors killed. So <laughs> Orlando said he would kickstart the racism himself. Orlando is only 16, and he likes to play at being a soldier, but he's really a delicate soul, and he'd just rather be a writer. Unfortunately, Orlando is kind of a shitty poet. Yeah. In particular, Orlando likes to go sit under this giant oak tree on his estate and write a poem with this really inspired title. It's called The Oak Tree. Um, can you find the phallus? Sturdy boughs of English oak as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're, we're getting it's a lot... nationalist nation and yep. patriarchal. Can we have the big... Uh, sorry, I always do this, but can we have the big panorama when he sits on the hill? Um, the hill with the oak tree is so high that 19 English counties could be seen beneath, sometimes even 30 or 40. <laughs> sometimes one could see the English Channel, wave reiterating upon wave. Rivers could be seen and pleasure boats gliding on them, and galleons setting out to sea, and armadas with puffs of smoke from which came the dull thud of cannon firing. To the east, there were the spires of London and the smoke of the city. So, it's that sort of like, merry old England, but also... You know, ooh, time and space are being played with modernism. You know, I like I like this bit, but also I'm a bit annoyed by it. But that's sort of like, oh, the Shepherd Isle, oh, the days of old England, oh, how what what we were destined to inherit, the glories we were about to experience. That's what I always get when you get these like Elizabethan narratives. That's what they're leaning into. See, it? I don't think that she's doing that at all necessarily. I don't think that this is particularly nationalistic. I think it's she's playing with the idea of nostalgia and the role that that plays in nationalism. This is clearly tongue-in-cheek, I think. I mean, I think it's too nicely written to be tongue-in-cheek. So Orlando, he's on a hill, he's writing poetry. Queen Elizabeth is in town. She's visiting the family estate. He's got to go back and put his best hose on and all mm -hmm. that. And he's given the task of presenting her with a bowl of rose water to wash her hands in. 
Such was his shyness that he saw no more of her than her ringed hand in the water, but it was enough. It was a memorable hand, a thin hand with long fingers always curling as if round orb or scepter, a hand, he guessed, attached to an old body that smelt like a cupboard, which body was yet ca caparisoned with all sorts of brocades and gems, and the queen's eyes were light yellow. Yeah, so this is actually really cool. Um, they're playing, Virginia Woolf here is playing with something called the blazon tradition, and this is something that we get a lot in sonnet poetry, and what it basically means is you view somebody through all of their separate body parts. You don't see them as necessarily a cohesive whole. This is a really big component of love poetry of the day. So with Queen Elizabeth, we see, you know, the hand, we see uh, all the gems on her dress, we see her eyes, but he's not getting a full portrait. Now, this is given a lot of flack um, in, in sort of more recent days about how it's really dehumanizing because it's primarily targeted at women, it's used to sexualize them, but they're not whole people, they're just a series of like, oh, she has a nice bosom and a finely ankle and a head of hair like this. So I just like that they're kind of playing with that here because here it's not sexy. Elizabeth reciprocates, doesn't she? Strength, grace, romance, folly, poetry, youth. She read him like a page. So, you know, she, she's kind of, she's got his card marked or whatever. It's interesting that she looks at personality traits and he's looking at body parts. There's clearly gender conditioning Yeah, there. maybe, yeah. Uh, so the Queen thinks Orlando's hot, despite him being a literal child. You can tell who wrote this draft of <laughs> so she, she waits a couple of years until he's 18 and then brings him to court and makes him a knight of the garter and her closest companion. Uh, it's not really clear if they're sleeping together. I think it's a safe assumption. It's never explicitly said, but... Happened twice. Um, <laughs> Orlando doesn't mind mucking around with the common man, however. He always had a liking for low company, especially for that of lettered people whose wits so often keep them under. There's a little bit of authorial false modesty there. Oh, it's so hard being a bloody genius and <laughs> being put down by the aristos. <laughs> Sorry, Virginia. Annie's caught kissing a servant girl one day by the Queen and thrown out of her favour. She dies soon after, however, so that's presumably puts him back in her good books, I don't know. Then we get the Great Frost. Wait, what is the best frost? Nick. In your book, Nick. Right, okay. Who's that again? <laughs> and that's um just a sort of like a like the spirit of winter. Isn't that Jack Frost? Nick Frost. Who's Nick Frost? Is that? He's Simon Pegg's Shit. friend. <laughs> it's just it's just the epitome of winter. <laughs> 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 so in this big frost, the Thames freezes, and a huge carnival breaks out on the frozen river. We've got one of the old classics of the Save Me From My Shelf back catalogue, little known play called Othello. It's being performed on the ice. You always have to have a little bit of Shakespeare, don't you, in these Elizabethan set things. Rough though the staging was, still the astonishing sinuous melody of the words stirred Orlando like music. Oh, the... The humble genius of perky old England, oh, it's so, oh, what we're about to inherit, oh. In the film version that I'm going to cast at the end of this, in this scene, it's going to be you and I recapping Othello from the second episode, so as Orlando goes by, she's going to hear somebody going, hey, dummy, you're getting robbed. That's you our... what? Yeah. <laughs> That's our second episode, if you guys want to go back and listen to us when we were still really scared and didn't know what we were doing, as opposed to today. So the new king invites envoys from Russia during this time, and Orlando spies a figure skating on the Thames. Figure skating. A figure figure skating. 
he instantly falls in love with whoever this is, but he's not sure if it's a girl or a boy. Queen reading, hooray! Turns out it's a Russian princess named Sasha. And at court, they are seated across from each other at dinner, and they're the only two people in the whole room who speak French. So they hit it off right away, and they have their own secret little language where they can speak freely amidst all the courtly bullshit. It's pretty romantic. Bonsoir, je suis une Good evening. I am a Russian princess, and I would like to talk with you because that's normal at dinner. Hello, you look like a boy girl and that is weird things in my pants. Additionally, your hair smells like a cupcake and I think that I love you. Alright, well, I would apologize to our listeners, but you all know what to expect from me by now, which is very little. So this is great for Orlando. He's met a cute girl boy. A princess that's delightful they're speaking their sexy little French at each other um, problem though is that he's already kind of engaged what this is news to us so he had had a previous sweetheart named Euphrosyne and Euphrosyne is bless you Euphrosyne is inoffensive even pleasant but she's just not interesting She's kind of like if string cheese were a person, and everyone, including her dumbass, starts to notice that Orlando is paying just a little too much attention to Sasha. Instead of breaking up with her like an adult, he runs away with Sasha, and he's like, I'm gonna go to Russia. So the Russians are preparing their ship to go back home. Orlando's like, great, I'm gonna scope out the ship for my escape plan, I'm gonna jump on board. And when he goes down below decks, he discovers Sasha fooling around with a sailor. I mean, who among us? Orlando faints, he has to be revived, and when he comes to, Sasha gaslights his ass into thinking it was just a trick of the light, that she was just asking the sailor to help her move a box. Phrasing. And gross of Orlando to think that she could ever sleep with a poor. And Orlando buys it like a fucking mook. When the river finally thaws and the ice breaks, it leads to the destruction and death of loads of people who were caught off guard. You know, they're all at the coconut shy, they're all on the helter-skelter, they're just doing frost fair shit. They didn't expect the Thames to suddenly melt like that. Are they rich people? No, don't worry. They're just the sort of usual dross that you oh, get that's at fine. frost fairs. Well, those yeah. aren't people. Well, not anymore. Um, <laughs> Orlando, he's still planning to run away with Sasha, so he goes and checks out if a ship that was stuck in the ice is still there. It's not. It's gone. They uh, sailed in the middle of the night. She never even said goodbye. That's the original definition of the term ghost ship. Oh, there you go. Hey, yeah. hey! The old modern parlance. That's for the youths, high yeah. schoolers listening to this. <laughs> Enjoy. Orlando, he, you know, he's kind of burned his bridges with his previous engagement. Maybe she'll take me back! Yeah, whatever her name was. Uh, this gets him banished from court. He goes home and he inexplicably falls into a coma for seven days, <laughs> aka a week. Okie dokie, strap in everybody, because we're about to get weird with it. Had Orlando, worn out by the extremity of his suffering, died for a week and then come to life again, he becomes a bit of a recluse in the family home and starts wallowing in literature. So the book kind of makes a lot of jokes about reading, doesn't it, and writing. Uh, it calls it the disease of reading. So he writes a lot of sad plays and poems, and uh, is generally pretty saddened about his breakup. Yeah, don't mind me, I'm just in the throes of a calamitous love that's slowly fermenting into vinegar. 
Finally, he decides to throw money at the situation and becomes a patron of one Nick Green, a famous writer at the time. He's not real. Well, it's littered with real characters. There are real people so... in it. No, I wasn't making it for you. Oh. I just want people to know. There are real people in this. He's not one of them. I did look this up the first time I read this. So did I. Okay. So Nick Green comes to stay with Orlando and reads some of his work. He has something about him which belong neither to servant, squire, or noble. Oh, the proto-bourgeoisie, Lord love him. And therefore, he's a big complainer. Uh, he complains about his health, about his current play, about the state of poetry in England. And he doesn't like any of the contemporary writers, Shakespeare, Marlowe, Johnson, Dunn. He says they're all crap. The real geniuses, you know, this is something we can all get on board with. The real geniuses were in the past, specifically in ancient Greece. This guy bitches about everything. Just like every single thing in the world has pushed every button he has, except for f***ing mute. That's funny. Because those kind of wisecracks are so like, usually they're too subtle for me. Like, they can't stand anything but up. Oh, did... That's obviously a good joke, but I just like, I'm so slow that it like took ages to percolate in. Oh, damn, <laughs> sorry. They don't really see eye to eye on a lot of things, and although Orlando promises to give Nick Green a pension in support of an artist, Nick Green, very quickly after leaving, writes a brutal satire about Orlando, and everyone knows who it's about. Or this would kill me. If somewhere uh, if, mean satire about you. If you had, like, a best friend who you're like, you're going to be my personal artist, and I'm going to pay your wages, and we're going to be a wonderful team forever, and then you find out that they're, like, writing nasty things about you for all of London to see, that would kill, especially when you're a young, like, inexperienced kid, and this guy is much older and, like... Should know better, really, shouldn't he, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not really sure what his motivation is. I'm like, Orlando just agreed to pay your wages. Why are you biting the hand that feeds you? You have a patron now, a wealthy patron. Why would you do... This is the one thing in the book that I don't really like. When Orlando finds out about it, he's very upset, as you said, Abby, and he says, I've done with men. Wait. Play the old horn, the old foreshadowing horn. Possibly with the queer reading overlapping it. Ooh, that's gonna get messy. Your queer foreshadowing. Again, Marie Kondo voice, I love mess. So, he becomes a recluse, he cares only about his dogs, but he still carries on paying Nick Green's pension. My question is, what types of dogs do you think Orlando had? Um, what was the big Tudor dog? Lurcher? Jacobean dog, I should say. I don't know. What do you think? Anabaptist? I don't know dog breeds. <laughs> Anabaptist. <laughs> so Orlando, he's been kicked out of court. He's lost the two girlfriends he has. He's back at his family's estate. His <laughs> writer buddy actually hates him. We're told he's about 30 years old. I'm not quite sure how long he's been living as a recluse. And he feels like he's experienced everything life has to offer. His mood ring is just a filthy brown and he's just fucking depressed. So he's burned all of his literary work except his poem, The Oak Tree, which is he's still sort of writing. And one day while he's writing at his desk, he notices outside... A Immediately, I bet, like, he sits down to write. Ooh, what's that? Yeah, I got, I got my mug of tea, I finally, I've had a muffin. Yeah. All right, I can't procrastinate anymore. And then he notices a very tall lady crossing his private grounds outside. So he runs out, you know, probably with his shotgun. This land is posted, friend. He notices that this woman is not very attractive. She kind of looks like a rabbit. And she introduces herself as Archduchess Harriet from Romania, who is visiting the English court. And she saw a picture of Orlando painted and hanging up at court. And she thinks Orlando resembles her dead sister. So a little bit of a queer reading there, a little sort of like, oh, he looks like a girl. And she decided 
hey, because you resemble my dead sister, I'm going to stalk you to your estate and meet you by going on your private property. They become friends, as you do when somebody has stalked you. And one day, after they've been hanging out for a little while, Orlando starts to wonder if maybe he's falling in love with her, despite her being very weird and ugly. So, um, the note I have here is, she is his manatee? Are you familiar with that expression when you call somebody a manatee? I've only heard good things about people being called dugong. Much like sailors out on the sea who saw manatees and thought they were mermaids, when you're isolated, anybody starts to look good. I'm just going to say something in defense of manatees. <laughs> They're, they're beautiful creatures. They're lovely, aren't they're they? They're shapely. Well, I don't... They need I, love, too. Obviously, I don't fancy manatees, but... Mm, but I've seen your background on your laptop. But they're lovely, aren't they? They're nice animals. And they're, they're friendly and everything. I think mm. I like manatees. Friendliness goes a long way. I had a quote. A dreary one. <laughs> uh, the best kind. So there's a lot more about literary cultural change and stuff like that. So this is reflected in Orlando's own style. He had changed his style amazingly. His floridity was chastened, his abundance curbed. The age of prose was congealing those warm fountains. The very landscape outside was less stuck about with garlands, and the briars themselves were less thorned and intricate. Perhaps the senses were a little duller, and honey and cream less seductive to the palate. Also, the that the streets were better drained and the houses better lit had its effect upon the style. It cannot be doubted. So, you know, modernity's coming, everyone writes in prose. It's no longer kind of zany people dancing around writing poems. That's what it means to be modern. I like that though, that she updates not only the style of the oak tree with the time, but also the style of her own Oh yeah, that, that keeps That's coming back, really, doesn't it? Really she, plays, fun. she writes in different styles, yeah. That's a, such a modernist trope as well, like that chapter in Ulysses that's all in different styles of English. Yeah, well it's all about looking back, I mean yeah. this whole... It's also about showing how talented you are. Yes. I think there's like a real like, sort of showy off thing going on, isn't there? Orlando is so weirded out by his reaction to the Archduchess that he immediately goes to the king and asks for a diplomatic post in Constantinople. So, as I said, this is the kind of first time we have a real sense of how much time has passed. It's kind of the 1670s or maybe 80s or 90s. They talk about the Great Fire, they talk about the Glorious Revolution. We don't really know what's going on. The 1670s? But that should mean Orlando would be a minimum of 90 by now. What? Yeah. But he's uh, 30. Yeah. What's happening? I'm confused. Yeah, it's the 1670s, but our, the whole thing that you had before about the lead makeup and the roughs and things, Daniel, that's that's inappropriate. I'm so sorry that it's actually quite inappropriate to talk about. You've completely let this podcast I'm down. sorry, uh, yet again. Okay, picture the scene. It's the 1680s. Mehmed IV is seated in the sublime port. The Ottomans were at the gates of Vienna and have been pushed back. The golden age is over. But it doesn't look like it from Constantinople. Lots of nice trade and shipping on the Bosphorus, palaces and mosques everywhere. Coffee, cigars, hashish, Turkish delight, dragomans on tap. Things look pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> At least if you're moving in the same diplomatic circles as Orlando. This is a save me from my shelf first, man. Yeah, Two just... set the scenes. I know. I really hope this doesn't happen again and again no, and again. Too, yeah. I'll go crazy. I'll do research. <laughs> Dragonlands. <laughs> I really love Mehmed IV. He's my favorite Ottoman Sultan. Why didn't they take Vienna? So, yeah, Orlando is in Constantinople. He is a diplomat. 
Um, it's like a laundromat, but for... Oh, no. For I, dinosaurs. <laughs> line! <laughs> I had something yeah, for this. It's almost a good joke. I like that. Yeah, this joke went precisely where it should. Nowhere. So, he was a really great diplomat. Sadly, all record of his work was lost in a fire. Possibly the Great Fire? It's kind of ambiguous because Wolf is playing with chronology. Uh, but he did some, and I quote, dope shit. That's from the great Abigail Boucher, not Virginia Woolf. The narrator kind of remarks that historians and biographers are kind of often stymied in their efforts to recapture the lives of their subjects, and this is one of those examples. Records are sort of fallible, a lot can happen, so biographers have to make things up sometimes or fill in the blanks. That, that's basically what she's getting at. Yeah. So Orlando has, sticks to a kind of a rigid schedule when he's in Constantinople. He makes no friends while he's in Constantinople and has no love affairs. He refuses all human contact that isn't work-related. So basically, Orlando spent the entire 17th century trying to find himself, and now he's spending the entire like 18th century wishing he found somebody else. There's a strange incident when uh, Orlando receives word from home that he's been made a duke. Uh, and this is kind of uh, accompanied with a lot of like local tension and rebellion in Constantinople. There's a lot of good stuff about like fireworks and rockets going off and people getting attacked and things. The next morning, Orlando is found by his servants in a coma and they can't explain it. Another of his classic seven days, and he's only w awakened when the rebellion boils over. But now things start to get a bit stranger. Yeah, if you're gonna drop your PCP, do it now, friends. It's gonna get weird. He has a kind of dream where he's visited by three spirits. You know, like Scrooge, but... About about gender play? Yeah. Yeah, he gets visited by the Lady of Purity, the Lady of Chastity, and the Lady of Modesty. They they all kind of sing a weird chant about gender. They banish themselves in favour of the truth. Whatever you dosed me with, Daniel, it's kicking in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate this section of the book. Orlando wakes up. He stretched himself. He rose. He stood upright in complete nakedness. Now, everybody hang on to your ass here for this next bit. And while the trumpets pealed truth, 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 we have no choice left but confess. He was a woman. Huh. New gender just dropped. Yeah. Yeah, so Orlando looks at herself in the mirror and says, look at them baps. Okay. And she just accepts it wholesale. Now, the prefab joke I have here is, Orlando said she would grow the vagina herself. This is Dalloway joke. Quote, Orlando had become a woman. There is no denying it. But in every other respect, Orlando remained precisely as he had been. Then the narrator switches to calling Orlando they. And then fairly soon thereafter, the narrator switches to calling Orlando her. The author explains that people around Orlando don't really bat an eye. They either assume that Orlando is a bloke in drag or that she had always been a woman, and they're just kind of misremembering, like, oh, wasn't she a dude? No, no, she must have always been a woman. Orlando has to leave Constantinople quickly, because the rebels are murdering all the foreigners, you remember them. She falls in with a group of travelers. Some of the elders are suspicious of foreigners, and eventually their differences in communication and perspective on the world drive a wedge between Orlando and the rest of the group. So... They, you know, they're all disturbed that Orlando kind of sentimentalizes nature and, you know, it's kind of has this poetic tendency, whereas they... They're like, nature is for a living in. Why are you, like, turning it into a weird Yeah, being like, oh, what a wonderful son. They're particularly disturbed about her speaking with pride about her family's illustrious 500-year histories. They're like, well, I suppose 500 years is impressive, but our culture goes back thousands of years, so get a grip. Uh, and anyway, all aristocrats are, you know, thieves and gangsters and... Uh, and eventually she decides to go back to England. 
Which is fortunate because her hosts were getting ready to murder her for being too weird. On the ship back to England, Orlando realises that she should probably get some lady frocks and lean into this whole full femme thing. Not like those bloody bloke frocks. Uh, no. excuse me, hmm. have you not seen early 18th century? That's what I'm saying. She yeah. doesn't want a bloke frock, she wants a lady frock. In part, this is because Orlando realizes that she now has to start caring about her modesty and her chastity. But she's also a little confused because she's had a ton of sex as a bloke for all these years, so is she a virgin? Oh, it's almost like virginity is a weird construct. I, I saw somebody on Twitter say that we should only refer to it now as making your sexual debut, and I think that is charming and a lot more accurate. Orlando has a long diatribe about how useless and dangerous long skirts are, especially because, quote, she tossed her foot impatiently and showed an inch or two of calf. A sailor on the mast, who happened to look down at that moment, started so violently that he missed his footing and only saved himself by the skin of his teeth. This is also a find the phallus thing. Her power over the penis, a man up on the mast. Yeah. So Orlando is kind of sad because she won't be able to show off her legs anymore, which are her chief beauties. I'm hmm. like, just give it, give it, you know, 200 years to Orlando. That about, like, blokes' legs in the, uh... 16th and 17th centuries as well. Well into that. the 19th, it was all about showing a handsome calf. calf. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That, um, it was, who was that guy? Was he called Richard Hatton or something that was uh, one of Elizabeth's first favourites and she was like, nice legs. I like how you say that, like, that is not a continuing thing today. I watched a Gene Kelly musical and god damn if he is not built like a brick shit house. Oh, people ogle, man, I'm fully aware of that, but that's sort of like, well, wearing tights. <laughs> Gene Kelly does not wear tights, he wears big baggy trousers. Uh, in this one he was wearing tights and I appreciated it. <laughs> so Orlando gets sad about all the other things she'll never be able to do again, including killing a man. And I'm like, bitch, just move to poisoning instead of dueling. You can kill to your heart's content. Leading an army. Joan of Arc did it. Don't be a coward. Or wearing a bunch of military medals. And I'm like, girl, you have more chest now to display them. Just wear them. She thinks gender is bullshit. Orlando also has some equally conflicting emotions upon seeing England again. We don't know quite how long she's been away, but we do get a date finally. We're at least now in the reign of Queen Anne, if not later, so a full hundred years have passed since the start of the novel. Oh no, but wait, so now a hundred years have passed and wait, oh, the set, geez. the setting is different again. Yeah, okay. Wait. Another picture of the scene. Oh god. Please. What are we gonna do? Fortunately, I didn't have to write anything for this one. Virginia Woolf done it for me. London has changed. It has broad and orderly thoroughfares. There are coaches. There are ladies in flowered silk who walk on raised footpaths. Citizens in broidered coats take snuff at street corners and the lampposts. Everybody's drinking coffee. You know the score. There are pineapples. They're pricey, but you can get them. <laughs> uh, it's the 18th century. Orlando, she's back in England, it's the 18th century, wigs. She discovers that there's a bit of a, a legal faff happening about her family's estate. Point the first. She's been gone so long that everyone presumed that she was dead and therefore could not hold any property whatsoever. Two, she is a woman, which amounts to much the same thing. Oh, uh, little commentary, uh, what? Uh, number three. She was an English duke who had married one Rosina Pepita, a dancer, and had had by her three sons, which sons now declaring that their father was deceased claim that all his property descended to them. Don't really get what we're going on with that bit. We can talk about that. Oh, it's just a fraudster. Okay. 
Her title and her assets are frozen until they can figure this out. She gets home and has a lot of thinking about her place in the world and starts writing the oak tree again. Give it up! Well, <laughs> there's a bit of a sort of a summoning spell. The moment she starts writing the oak tree, again, the Archduchess Harriet's there, looking exactly the same. I guess she's immortal too, then, I guess? Yeah, you do get the odd... It's like, uh, it's like Highlander, isn't it? Um, <laughs> this is just Highlander, isn't it? The Highbrow high Highlander. Um, they greet each other. And while Orlando's back is turned to pour them some wine, Archduchess Harriet has actually been an Archduke the whole time. So... Turns around, knobs out, Archduke Harry. Knob. Harriet's there, aka Harry. The original story was true. He had seen a picture of Orlando back in the day and fell in love, but he dressed as a woman, so he might have a chance, because Orlando was, was a, a bloke man, at that but time. resembled a woman, Harriet's sister, who is now Harry. But the sister is still a sister, I assume. I don't know that the sister was ever real. I thought that was just a cover. Okay. They play act their new gender roles. And uh, Archduke Harry is not much of a Lothario. He's a bad courtship guy. That courtship has sunk. That's <laughs> an Abbey-style pun. Um, he goes back every day to ask Orlando to marry him, and they just sit in awkward silence. Periodically, Harry says, I adore you. Yeah. Just over and over again, like, okay, yeah, we, we got that. Can we move on? Have you seen any good films lately? Mm. So Orlando is like, look, I'm not saying I'm incapable of falling in love with Duke Harry, but much like Thomas Edison, I've merely found a hundred ways not to be in love with him so far. Maybe tomorrow will be different. Let's... What's that? I haven't failed at developing the light bulb. I found a hundred ways not to make a light bulb. Right. God damn it, Daniel. You are the worst Victorianist I have ever seen. You have, like, you've collected little bits of knowledge. Uh, an absurd, frightening amount of knowledge resides in your head. In a, But there's, like, a 19th century shaped hole right in the middle. Like I, a cartoon going through bollocks. a window. That's bollocks. Is, is it? Yeah. Is it? I'm trying is to think it? about a thing that I knew about the 19th century that you didn't. Uh-uh. Uh, I will give you all the money in my wallet if you can pick uh, one. You got nothing, friend. Duke Harry just keeps coming back in this weird attempted courtship. They get so bored, they start betting. They're like, okay, let's gamble. And they start betting money on which lump of sugar a fly will land on first. Now, Orlando's like, how do I lose this bozo, right? Oh, all gentlemen detest a cheat. So Orlando starts playing the game with a very obviously dead fly. She sort of goes, hey, what's, what's that over there? And he'll go, what? And she'll put a dead fly on the lump of sugar, thinking he's going to notice that she's cheating and get mad at her. But he's too stupid to notice, and he loses 17,000 pounds to her this way. Finally, even somebody as dumb as Duke Harry figures out that she's been cheating, and he gets really upset. Orlando. You remember her. She tries to get into London high society. However, it's boring. At one of these parties, she meets Alexander Pope. Enemy of the podcast, Alexander Pope. <laughs> um, <laughs> We've never read any Pope, have we? We never exactly, talked about Pope. Exactly. That's why he's an enemy of the podcast. Pope is accidentally too witty at the party and he alienates everyone and they just like to talk about empty nothings. He's humiliated, but Orlando thinks he's great and invites him home with her. And they start their own kind of literary salon with other of those sorts of scribblerian 18th century types. Addison, Jonathan Swift, friend of the podcast, Jonathan Swift Ugh. is there. 
he even reads some passages from Gulliver's Travels to the group. I Lucky Orlando. I'm, you know, finally we're getting some good stuff in here. Well, I was thinking, is Orlando not a little bit like Gulliver's Travels? Like a kind of... Uh, uh, but in terms of time rather time than space. Time than space. Ooh, yeah. hark at you, fancy pants. That's, that's a great reading. Yes, thank you. So, surprise, surprise, Orlando's still trying to be a writer. And her poetic style sort of changes with her association with Pope and Swift and all that lot. It's pleasant and witty now. That's how they wrote in the 18th century. There you go. You can write that whole century off now. There's a kind of funny bit where the writers are kind of, they're framed as slightly effeminate, aren't they? They're always kind of fainting and kind of mopping their brow and having lace things. But they're also quite misogynistic. The 18th century is kind of gendered, but also has its own gender politics that is kind of contradictory to that, which I quite like. Yeah, it, it plays with gender even as much as it sort of reifies yeah. already existing gender structures. Well, Swift, as we've discussed before, didn't like women, did he? Um, listen to that episode and you tell us. Yeah. He has weird things to say about women's nipples. Gross, apparently. Yeah. and the rest of them. She accidentally insults Pope while yawning as he talks, so, you know, they leave, Orlando's alone again. Let's get out of here, boys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the scribbler is. Yeah. We're not, we're not wanted here no more. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> in a peak of loneliness, Orlando dresses as a man and picks up a young sex worker named Nell. Eventually, Orlando reveals herself to be a woman as well, and they have a, you know, a bit of a, bit of a powwow. No, uh, they have a bit of a chat. They're enjoying themselves. You know, it's nice. There's no, you know blokes there to ruin things, although, you know, you and I have quite different views on this section. You seem to think it was quite a nice bit with all like, the sisterhood all having a chat, and I thought Orlando was kind of patronising and they were all kind of just like sucking it up until Orlando left. Well, first of all, both things can be true. Um, I think there are some overlapping issues here. So there is comfort of a female network, absent all male bullshit. Orlando has never had that before. But there is a very patronising bohemian poverty tourist class dynamic. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe you're just right. The book's dog shit. You're right, Daniel. <laughs> May I have my prefab, please? Go ahead. Orlando said she would start the coffin herself. It's a Mrs. Dalloway joke. Right. Oh, wow, you're aggressively not laughing. Uh, Your Honor, permission to treat my co-host as hostile. I don't even remember the original line. That's the Mrs. Problem. Dalloway said she'd buy the flowers herself. Start the coven herself. Come on with some more wolf jokes, that's what I think. I can't believe I asked you to host this podcast with me. The only thing you should host is a parasite. <laughs> a parasite can't have a parasite. <laughs> that's me told. Okay, my section now, yes? Oh no, Daniel. Oh no. It's happening again. It's New Year's Eve, 1799. That's... We're... New Year's Eve, so... We're entering into a... A new epoch. Oh, no, no, no. What are we going to do? Okay. Get your... Throw your wig on the floor. Okay. Orlando goes for a long walk through the city and listens to the clock chime midnight. Picture the scene. A thunderclap. Train tracks spring up all over England. Women start wearing big hoop skirts and tightly laced corsets, both made out of pure arsenic. Men start wearing top hats and plaid trousers and growing elaborate facial hair to hide all their homosexuality under. Doilies cover every surface, probably to distract us all from our evolution from monkeys and the fact that we can now talk to ghosts. The monarch is not amused as industry sweeps the nation, covering cities with smog and pickpockets and penny-farthing bicycles and imperialism. 
the Western world collectively forgets what sex is and refuses to have any more of it until 1918. We are in the 19th century, friend! Do doilies cover a quarter of the world? Yes, the sun never sets yeah. on the giant doily. <laughs> so I'm, I'm being facetious here, and this is clearly a sort of late Victorian thing that I'm going for, but Virginia Woolf is actually kind of doing the same thing that you and I have been doing this whole time with the set scene. So what Virginia Woolf actually writes, and this tracks very neatly, is, quote, With the eighth stroke of the clock, some hurrying tatters of clouds sprawled over Piccadilly. They seemed to mass themselves and to advance with extraordinary rapidity towards the west end. As the ninth, tenth, and eleventh strokes struck, a huge blackness sprawled over the whole of London. With the twelfth stroke of midnight, the darkness was complete. A turbulent welter of cloud covered the city. All was darkness. All was doubt. All was confusion. The 18th century was over. The 19th century had begun. Right? And this is hilarious. This is this is my favorite bit of the novel. Like, this is the thing that sort of has um, endeared this novel to me forever. Because it's this... Wolf is clearly picking on this goofy idea that time can be sort of divided up really neatly into segments. You say the Victorian era, you think of particular images. You say, you know, the medieval period, you think of... Barbarian and... Exactly. Culture combined. Orlando resumes residency at her family's estate. She doesn't like... London, it's grim now. Her estate is all kind of gothicified. Uh, it's all covered in ivy and it's cold and dreary. There are some kind of comic Dickensian servant types living there now. The muffins is keeping not in the library, one says, which I liked. I thought that was funny. She once again takes up writing the oak tree, which she's been writing, that's with a little bit of nostalgia, since 1586. 200 years is obviously too much time to spend on one poem. And she's like, oh, I've got to end it right now. But she gets distracted again when she realises she's never been married. Should Orlando get married? She's not doing anything else. No. All right. um, she goes for a bit of a walk on her property. She falls and breaks her left leg in a parody of Sense and Sensibility. At that moment, she hears hoofbeats approach. A man leaps off his horse and says, Madam, you're hurt. I'm dead, sir, she replied. A few minutes later, they became engaged. Men just can't resist women with open fractures. And they have a daft marriage of the souls, by which I think Wolf means they're just both real horny. And they decide that they can learn everything important about each other, like their names and where they live. Later, who cares? Okay, so his name is, <laughs> buckle up for this one, Marmaduke Bonthrop Shelmerty. <laughs> okay. And he is a sea captain, so hello, sailor. They also, weirdly, soon accuse each other of being the other gender. And it turns out that Shell, as Orlando calls him, has done a similar gender swap thing that Orlando has done. So Orlando now, weirdly, finally feels like a full woman, even though Shell recognizes a gender ambiguity in her. Weirdly, as soon as Orlando feels like a full woman, whatever that means, miraculously, her lawsuits are all settled and her assets and her title are finally unfrozen in her favor. I don't know, maybe, maybe the real duchy was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Orlando and Shell get married pretty much immediately, and he goes off on adventures sailing around Cape Horn. Orlando finally feels at peace, with all the sort of facets of her personality now fulfilled, so she has both adventure and calm, masculinity and femininity, solitude and love. And she's finally able to write 
and finish the oak tree. She goes into the city looking for a publisher of her manuscript. She runs into Nick Green. You remember what? him? Yeah, he's back. He's also immortal, apparently. He's, also immortal. he's another of the Highlanders. Is she still paying his pension? I don't know. She should check her, you know. Bank statements. Yeah. He's become a professor and is the most influential literary critic of the Victorian age. This may seem familiar. He rants about how all the greats of literature are gone. Shakespeare, Marlowe, i.e. those he once said were rubbish. And now we have Hacks, Tennyson, Browning, Carlyle. Uh, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that. Could I just say that this is the plot of Midnight in Paris? Yes, it is, isn't it? And that's and also stupid. It's yeah. also stupid, and it's Woody Allen trying to hide from us the fact that he completely ripped this off from Orlando by not having Virginia Woolf appear anywhere in this 1920s set. Did she hang around in Paris, though? I don't know, but the whole point is he clearly stole this from a modernist, and she's yeah, not showing yeah. up anywhere. This is the most egregious thing Woody Allen has ever done. Dicing with the controversy there. Um, I'm going to say Midnight in Paris... Not great, derivative. Orlando, just not great. Hooray for Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> I'm real sorry you think that. Fully, originally, not great. <laughs> Nick Green discovers the oak tree and takes it from her, saying it must be published at once. Orlando goes home and gives birth to a little boy. That springboards us into modernity, 1928. No, no, does this mean what I think it means? Yeah, you better believe it. Oh, no. I'm set the scene and I'm back. I'm better than ever. Have you had a nice rest? Yeah, I have. Making me do your job for you? Yeah. It's the 20th century. Uh, First World War. Alienation. You know, all that stuff. It's miserable. The European Golden Age, it's over. Still, though, seems pretty good if you're in Orlando's or Exalted Circles. Yep. Plus ça change. Uh, aeroplanes. Lashings of machine-pulped orange juice. Tall buildings. Streams of consciousness on tap. It's the 20s. So, we're in the 1920s, and one, we skip over World War One entirely, so I'm glad yeah, to know don't, that. Don't worry about don't wor it. Don't worry. Hush, baby, don't worry about it. It's okay. So one day while shopping, Orlando thinks she sees Sasha. So apparently Sasha is also immortal. But she's like, ooh, Sasha has aged terribly. Meanwhile, I'm aging like a pretty okay wine. But she's not sure, actually, is that even Sasha? I don't know. And she says that the older she gets, the more things start to double for her. So an item isn't just an item anymore. It's also this whole vehicle to prompt a memory of another thing. So Orlando's thinking back over her whole long life. We never resolve if this was Sasha, but goddamn how satisfying that is to run into an ex when you're looking like a million bucks and just have a poem published to great acclaim, and they look like shit. Then, just to put a little cherry on top of that Sunday, Orlando finds out that she's won a huge literary prize for the oak tree. I'm sorry, but she is not a man. I have to draw a line somewhere, Daniel. This is completely unacceptable and inappropriate. What, that a woman would No, no. This is just pure wish fulfillment on Wolf's part. It has never happened in the history of literature. I know you're being satirical here, but I've just got a question in terms of, like, the inner logic of the text. Wolf hates Victorian literature. She hates the Victorian period. Orlando got the oak tree published in the Victorian period and is now winning a prize for it in the 1920s. That does not make sense. <laughs> that oh, is crazy. I, I'm sorry, that's where you pull the plug on this whole thing? <laughs> I don't mind the time-traveling stuff, I don't mind the gender stuff. 
It's when the aesthetic values of one period are trashed by another, and yet that period somehow rewards. But could this not be one of those things? It's like where how Moby Dick got rediscovered in the twenties. Is uh, <laughs> is that what you're saying? Your eyes have gone so wide right now in horror. I'm just gonna let you work Orlando through it. Orlando is the new Herman Melville. Is that what you're saying? Are you okay? Because yeah. I'm worried you're about to have a mental breakdown. Just thinking about how ridiculous it was that everyone in the 1850s didn't like Moby Dick. No, I- They need to get a grip. Maybe we'll cover that one day. No, it's too precious. You could summarize it in a sentence, I think. Get revenge on this goddamn fish. So, right, she's won a prize. Orlando's feeling pretty good about herself. She goes out and sits under the actual ancient oak tree on her property. She Some continuity. <laughs> the roast beef of old England under its big boughs of English oak. Lord love it. That's all that matters. Shell comes home, no longer a sea captain, but a pilot, flying his airplane overhead. Or maybe he's still a sea captain and he just has another hobby now. I don't know. That's not my business. The end. Some casting. Well, first I'm going to start with the director. So I was thinking about ideas of portraiture in this because it's it's a biography. There are photos in the book. We didn't even talk there, about that. We will do. Okay. Yeah, there, in on. the book there are photos of Vita Sackville West and her ancestors. And um, I was thinking about directors who work well with portraiture. Wes Anderson. Give me a candy. Yes, a, I'm already enjoying this. A yeah. candy-colored Orlando. He does all of those shots of people either in perfect profile or head-on. And he makes really good use of voiceover, which I think you kind of need with Wolf's language here talking mm. through some of these scenes. It would be a shame to lose it. Orlando, there it was. And your thoughts on it? Because I know that when we finish this episode, you're going to set your copy of this book adrift on a boat and give it a full Viking funeral. I would never get rid of a book, even one that I didn't especially care for. No, 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 no. I don't hate the book. That's the thing, like, I don't even hate it. That's, I'm the, in... that's the tragedy of Orlando. <laughs> Some of it's really well written. I just feel like I'm annoyed by the aristocracy fetishizing stuff. So this is a very sort of, like, eat, pray, love situation mm, where yes, yes. money sure eases the path to soul-searching. Exactly. Yes, yes, you're, you're criticizing it much better than I am. Yeah, that's, that is the problem with it. Yeah, I, w I was thinking The Great Frost as well. Again, she could do more with it. She touches on these sort of class dynamics where it's a chance for, you know, The Great Frost is a chance for romance and wonder for the court, but the normal people are freezing and starving and die when the ice breaks up. It's about the spectacle of his heart being broken yeah. for the first time and in doing so part of that spectacle is oh a bunch of poor people die yeah, yeah. it's a vehicle for that we need to talk about biography because this is titled orlando a biography yeah. is this a biography specific captures the spirit of the individual in question then maybe it does i don't know well that's that's what virginia wolf well, is yeah, saying that's what i'm alluding to yeah but i suppose i don't really know what vera Vita sackville west was like so <laughs> I can't really. Is that's the that's a, that's the annoying thing. That yes, okay. Now we're getting to why I'm annoyed by the book. I've just realised it's because there's no way of knowing what her personality was like unless you already knew her. So this biography only works for people who knew her, right? Ooh, so it's exclusive. Yes, thank you for articulating that in a better way than I did. I don't really care about the facts of Peter Sackville West's life. However, if I did want to know about it, I would not learn much from this. 
Or, or maybe I would have learned more than I could have ever imagined. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm being down on it unnecessarily. Well, but the problem is that we're dealing with several different genres here. So we have biography. It's also a love letter, mm. as Vita's son said. And a piss take. I feel like there is actually and some a piss take. bitchy remarks. And also her. magical realism or fantasy, and I'm not sure I quite know the difference necessarily. This is a... Uh... Isn't this like the kind of other text of magical realism? Yeah, and I'm just wondering, is biography incompatible with magical realism? Virginia Woolf would say no, but, you know, in terms of genre, where do we draw the line? Yeah, th right, this, this is so weird and interesting. Genre and gender and, yeah, that's what you... Yeah. Oh, shit, what? No! Yeah. Oh, you're twisting my melon, man! Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine reading this in 1928? This would have f***ed with your head. Maybe I should read some reviews of it from that period. That'd be hilarious. Yeah, quite interesting. Please, if you find any good reviews of this, any really funny ones, please bring them back. Oh, you need to go to, like, the Schenectady Herald and read their <laughs> They're local gonna be reviewing all book day. review. I don't know, Daniel. This is your assignment. Okay. Should you choose to accept it, your task, two weeks from now, you will come back with some good reviews, okay? Okay, well will I was thinking, like, the places you would expect a chapter break, like, oh, we're, something big just happened, or... Oh, we're in another time period. That's that not... bit where Orlando's hanging off a cliff. It's like, <laughs> chapter break here, please. There wasn't one. But I like that the eras segue into each other really erratically, much like human memory. So you can look back on your life and there could be a two-year period where you're like, well, nothing happened. And then you could be like, remember that one week where everything mm, happened? And yeah. so, like, things are given weird weight and weird... Time is plastic. Yes. yes. Oh, I like that. Yeah. But the fact that... The... That's the funny thing about the book, isn't it? That the fact that chapters are there at all speaks to that kind of ambiguity of periodization that Wolf seems to simultaneously want to say that time is plastic and that it all blurs into itself, but then also she's quite... There are these solid delimitations. Well, and it's kind of ambiguous, I think. But I think that because, I mean, obviously, this is a really solipsistic way of viewing time. We're viewing it... The, the history of the world is just really Orlando's history and Orlando's life, but also, how else does anyone view time? Except through your sort of perspective of it, because we're all fallible humans. It's a very individualistic way of viewing time. I'm sure Maybe it is. Maybe the, you know, the collectivity of the pre-modern community has a, <laughs> a kind of collective view. I don't know. Here's my bitchy remark. The book veers dangerously close into being a kind of a magic school bus history of English literature. <laughs> Do people remember the magic school bus? Do you remember that? Obviously. Yeah, I hated that. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, you know, then they wrote like this, and now they wrote, oh, you know. So Miss Frizzle's going to boot your ass off the <laughs> oh, yeah, screw bus. her. There's this funny bit at the beginning in the introduction when Wolf is like, no one can read or write without being perpetually in the debt of Defoe, Sir Thomas Brown, Stern, <laughs> Sir Walter Scott, Lord Macaulay, Emily Bronte, De Quincey, and Walter Pater. <laughs> um, That's a few of those have kind of fallen out of fashion, haven't they? That is a weird trail yeah, that, mix that she's is, making. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think um, her sense of... Literary production is quite weird, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I, I, kind of, I kind of like that about it, but yeah. Okay, so let's end on some advice. We've talked a lot about biography and what Wolf intends and the whole, you know, backstory of Vita Sackville West. And I'm here now to just completely undo that. When it comes to reading a text, it's not necessarily what an author intends. It's what the text and the language does. Language is constantly updating. No author could ever anticipate all the ways in which their language could be understood. This is how you get close readings. Go weird with it. Takes two to tango, right? Exactly. You're the one reading it. 
Yeah, what yeah, patterns are you yeah, seeing? You're, you're meeting it as much as it's meeting you. Because authors often sort of do things subconsciously. They've absorbed patterns from the world that they're not even realizing they're absorbing and sort of replicating. Okay, okay clue to the next episode. The heroine of our next text is tied with Liz Taylor for number of turbulent marriages and the incredible amount of wealth that passed through her fingers. My clue is better. Bold claim. It consists of a series of syllogistic statements. Hens love roosters. Geese love ganders. Everyone else loves... You're going to have to find out next episode. Hens love roosters. Geese love ganders. Everyone else loves... Something as much as Daniel loves The Simpsons. <laughs> well, that was another humdinger, wasn't it, Abby? <laughs> Thank you for sharing it with me. We've had some wild times here, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.